0: A major announcement from the Biden administration will immediately impact Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans coming to South Florida. This is the South Florida Roundup, I'm Danny Rivero. The Biden administration made a major immigration policy announcement on Thursday, aiming to control immigration from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. It comes as hundreds of Cuban rafters have landed in the Florida Keys over the last few days, and as thousands more show up at the US-Mexico border. A big part of the announcement relies on people willing to sponsor friends and family members. We'll talk to one person who's living with her sponsor. Also on the South Florida Roundup, broken promises from your local government. We look back at a series of promises that have been made to residents in Miami-Dade County, but we're still waiting for the results, sometimes decades later. All that and more on the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The Biden administration on Thursday announced a sweeping new policy that will directly impact Cuban, Haitian and Nicaraguan migrants. In many cases, those trying to make it to South Florida. The announcement comes in the middle of the largest wave of so-called irregular migration that Cuba has seen since the Cuban Revolution in 1959 and as other kinds of crises affect other countries in the region. More than 500 Cubans on rafts arrived to the Florida Keys over last weekend, a huge increase that has local authorities calling for help. What should we make of all of this? And will the new border policy from the Biden administration slow the flow from the Caribbean? You can call us for the segment at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about this is WLRN's Latin America editor, Tim Paget, and also David Goodhue, who covers the Keys for the Miami Herald and the Florida Keys News. Tim and David, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. David, let, let's start with you. Um, so we've been following the increasing number of Cuban and Haitian boats that have been landing in the Keys over the last few months. But last weekend marked a major uptick and had authorities sounding the alarm about a potential humanitarian crisis either happening or about to happen. Um, can you paint the scene for us right now about what it's like in the keys? Like, what is the vibe in the keys right now with
1: all this? I mean, the the, the vibe in the keys for the among the average citizen or tourists or is just basically, curiosity i mean there's migrant boats on the sides of the roads you, you can drive down us one and you'll see these 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 boats and they're really you know monuments to ingenuity and you can you can tell the desperation the people that build these boats that they would hop on hop on them and sail across the florida straits which is one of the most treacherous uh, bodies of water in the world um people in the keys are used to migrant landings but not at this level it's certainly taxing local authorities uh, law enforcement uh fire rescue um they you know the, a lot some some of these some of these people come many many have dehydration at the least by the time they make it here um police have to wait on the side of the road uh before border patrol can get there and and because of the um massive massive influx over the past couple of weeks it can take hours, if not a day, before Border Patrol comes to the, to these scenes. Um, so some of these people are, are standing on the side of US-1 in the heat. It's been hot. Past, today it got nice, but it's been, it's been pretty hot. They didn't stand on the side of the road. I went mm-hmm. to, and- to a uh, lo- my landing last night in uh, Harry Harris Park in Tavernier in the Upper Keys. And those people have been there since about 7 in the morning. And I got there about almost 7 o'clock at night before Border Patrol could get to them. Mosquitoes were awful. And, and,
0: and while while those people are waiting for Border Patrol to get there, um, like in, in what kind of way are the local authorities being taxed? Is it because they are just standing guard and standing watch over these people while they wait for Border Patrol and they don't have enough officers to do that at all these different points in the Keys? Is Is that part of what we're talking about?
1: It's part of it. And they, I mean, they feel responsibility to sit with them, but at, at the same time, they, they can't do anything about it. Um, to, I mean, if, if they took them anywhere other than the, you know, basically dropping them off on the side of US, US one, if they took them anywhere, they, they, they'd they be uh, technically detaining them. And they, they don't have that power. They didn't commit any, any, any state or local crime. And so they feel, they feel kind of helpless.
0: And, you know, one of the things that happened this last week is uh, Dry Tortugas National Park. Um, huge tourist attraction, about 70 miles west of Key West, um, actually shut down this week as hundreds of Cuban migrants landed there. Um, what's the status of that situation right now? Is, is the park closed? Has it reopened?
1: The park is closed. The park service itself is being very tight lipped about the whole thing. We're hearing that they, they do not like the image that this presented, um, Hundreds of migrants on the shores of uh, Fort Jefferson. Um, the fact that they were forced to close down a, a park—I don't believe that's ever happened before, for, for especially not for for migration issue reasons. Um, It's—I've—I've I've seen pictures leaked out of there. There's there's well over a dozen boats on the beach um, that federal officials say there came in waves, and not 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 in one shot. But it's it's going to take a while before they can clean that up. Uh, just for environment, you know, environmental reasons and safety reasons, it's going to be uh, difficult to let tourists back in there
0: and, right now. Thank you. And Tim, Tim Paget joining us. Uh, I want to bring you in here, Tim, um, because uh, there's another side of this. Um, just yesterday on Thursday, the Biden administration announced a pretty major policy shift that aims to control migration from Cuba and, and Haiti. They're two of the countries really at the at the heart of this. Help us understand some of the biggest aspects of this policy shift and what it could mean for
2: people that are setting off on a boat, say, today. Well, a lot of U.S. officials have been describing this as sort of a, a immigration policy experiment, a new sort of carrot-and-stick approach to tr- to trying to curb this awful wave of migration we're seeing at the border and here in the Florida Keys. And it started really back in October with a sort of what you could call a pilot program with the Venezuelans which are, I think, now the second largest you know, wave group of, of migrants coming over the U.S. southern border. And what, what it does is it tells these migrants, if you stay at home, we will give you the opportunity to apply for a humanitarian parole that will let you come to the United States and stay here for two years, and you can get a work uh, permit to work here. Um, and th- what that does is it, it, it gives these migrants in Venezuela who would otherwise be thinking of going by land up to the U.S. southern border a reason to stay at home, not make that dangerous trek to the, to, to the Mexico-U.S. border. And, and you know, the, the stick part of the approach, though, is that if you do now decide to make that trek by land, you will automatically be expelled um a Venezuelan will be expelled if they enter illegally at the US southern border into back into Mexico That's so that's a deterrent from having someone do that and and there there's some pretty strong and remarkable numbers attached to this as right. it,
0: as it's been applied to the Venezuelans so we far we were right?
2: told back in November when we first started reporting on this a uh, homeland security official told us that it was probable that if if this Venezuelan pilot program looked like it was working and it does look like it has been working, I think we're seeing like a 90% reduction in the number of Venezuelans showing up at the border, then they would probably expand it to other nationalities, Cubans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, that are also flooding the border and the Florida Keys, and that's exactly what they did yesterday. They said, we're going to take this program that seems to have worked in keeping Venezuelans at home, uh, we're going to now extend that to the Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians, and uh, we'll see how it works. And I, I want to go to the phones now. We have a uh, caller,
0: Marco, calling from Miami. Marco, thank you for calling. You're you're on the South Florida Roundup. Thanks for calling.
3: Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got through. I normally don't get through. I believe the reason the Cubans are coming here is, is economic relief because of the blockade imposed by the United States. Now, my Cuban brothers, they tell me, oh, there is no blockade. Okay, so then let's remove. The sanctions or the embargo, and that will solve the problem. As a matter of fact, I believe we'll have a reverse migration to Cuba once they re- once they remove the blockade. Uh, now, th- and you know, th- th- thank 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 well, you, thank you,
0: Marco. Thing. I think I think we I think we got it. um You know, c- controversial, I suppose. um We call it an uh, a an embargo on Cuba. The Cuban right. government calls it a, 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 blockade. a blockade. There are yeah. severe sanctions obviously in place that do impact the quality of life that in some way are driving this.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. There, I mean, there are two basic reasons for the economic disaster in Cuba. The first and foremost is just the god-awful uh, economic mismanagement of the, of the communist dictatorship there. But th- there's no denying that the, that the embargo also adds sort of, you know, another layer of economic hardship on the, on the average Cuban. And that, that's that's one of the big debates right now. And um, D- David, I, w- I want to bring you back into this, um, you know,
0: what we're seeing in the in the in the Florida Keys. Um, I mean, do we have a sense of what is happening to the many hundreds of Cubans who like, just landed in the Keys this week? Um, are they being released to families? Are they being detained? Do we have any kind of information on that front?
1: Well, it's 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 not uh, concrete, but. For the most part, they're being taken to uh, process, uh, border patrol processing stations up in the mainland, uh, Dania Beach, West Palm Beach, um, being processed, being placed for the most part, up until now anyway, and especially since this latest wave started about two years ago. that, that And since uh, Cuba stopped taking deportation flights, they've been placed in kind of a uh, parole situation where they... Where they check in with an immigrate, or they're given dates to check in with immigration officials, and then they're, yeah, they're for the most. A lot of them are being released to friends and family.
0: I'm Danny Rivero, and you're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the huge uptick of Cuban and Haitian migration to the U.S. and attempts by the Biden administration to stop the flow. And we're joined by WLRN's Latin America editor Tim Paget, and also David Goodhue, who covers the Florida Keys for the Miami Herald and Florida Keys News. You can call us again at 800-743-WLRN that's 800-743-9576 um tim i I do want to go back to to something that 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 um david was just talking about about you know people being released to families people not being released to families um some of that with the very recent cases is up in the air but can you give us a breakdown on what has generally been happening to, say, Cuban migrants in particular over
2: the last couple of months when they when they do come by boat, say? Many of them do have family here that are waiting for them. And the Coast Guard, you know, tells families here, I mean, look, it's not like these people are just coming out of a vacuum. A lot of them are, are sending messages, you know, text, whatever, to family here, WhatsApp chat groups, et cetera. Uh, the, the families have an inkling that's, that, that these relatives are coming. And so what the Coast Guard, for example, is telling them to do is um, if they feel that that one of those relatives is a recent arrival, they can call the local congressperson here. And they supposedly then are supposed to have the information that they're gleaning from, from the U.S. federal agencies as to whether or not one of these people really did arrive. Where they can be picked up, et cetera. So there are some channels that have been opening up to help families find out if if these relatives are here and how to get them. And they're they're the ones usually absorbing them in, in, into uh, you know into the community here. Right.
0: And David, back to you. Um, you know, when we talk about these mass migration events by boat, I mean a lot of people are the first thing that goes to our to our minds is the Mariel lift of 1980. You know, I wasn't even alive for it, but I'm very familiar with with, with the images and the imagery um, of, you know, widespread h- housing issues, tent cities set up. Um, I mean, I don't think any of that has happened in the Florida Keys. Um, but is is that kind of the, kind of the specter of that kind of um, thing looming in the background when the Keys officials, the sheriff Ramsey, for example, is saying, hey, federal government, this is a really big problem is, is I mean, have people talked about those kind of image, images?
1: Yeah, they're worried about that. I mean, certainly a possibility. I mean, the as as we discussed today, Tim Tim mentioned uh, the difference now is so many people going across the uh, U.S. Mexican border. Mm-hmm. More, many more are going that route now. Whether that's going to change with this new policy, uh, I talked to one source who thinks that this that the change announced yesterday could could actually make things a lot worse across the Florida Straits, maybe maybe many more are going to try that way now that the the avenue through through Mexico does, looks like it's not it's not going to uh, be very uh, fruitful for them.
2: Yeah, that's one of the big sticking points or one of the big questions I, I should say here is what the Biden administration announced. That, that is obviously going to affect crossings on the US southern border. Is that also going to affect then people, Cubans in particular, coming by sea across the Florida Straits? The Homeland Security official we spoke with in, in November seemed to indicate that yes. I mean if if one of our purposes here is to stop the dangerous trek journey crossing of these people over you know through the desert, over the then why why wouldn't we also then, he has said he said to us, why wouldn't we also want to try to deter people from making this jump just as dangerous journey, uh, you know, across the Florida Straits. And Tim,
0: under under the policy announced this week, um, the way it's written, and I've and I've, I've read it, um, it's going to be that thirty thousand people per month total yeah. from, from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua will be let into the U.S. with work permits through this new process. Yeah, and if you times thirty thousand per month by twelve months, that's
2: 360,000 people per year through this process. Yeah, that's that's a substantial number. And it's also a substantial, uh, let's say, revision of this policy on the part of the Biden administration. Remember, I was talking about the, quote, pilot program with the Venezuelans that started in October. They put a cap of only 24,000 Venezuelans who could be eligible to apply for that that parole. In total. In total. And there wasn't even a time you know, limit or anything put on. And every immigration attorney here in Miami was saying, that is way, way too low. And it's just going to defeat the purpose of the program because once that cap is, is met, then you're just going to see Venezuelans coming across the U.S. southern border again. So I think the Biden administration was staring at reality here. and And that's why they made this change showing, like you just said, 30,000 per month uh, and 300, 360,000 per year. That is a nod to the, to the reality of the numbers that we're dealing with here. And you know, the
0: way that I read it and tell me your thoughts on it, on it, Tim. Um, but it seems to be written that it's 30,000 across the nationalities, but not necessarily like a yeah, cap it, on each, right? Or no, it
2: seems, it seems to be 30,000 for, for all four of those groups. Um, I, I think if it was thirty thousand for each group, I, I mean that that would be excessive. Uh, it's it's thirty. It, it does seem to be thirty thousand for all four of those nationalities in, in total. Yeah. Right. And we'll, we'll we'll keep our eye on how that breaks down. Um, we have another
0: caller ca- calling in, Robert from Miami. Thanks for calling in, Robert. You're on.
3: Yeah. Hi there. Um, my question is just really simple. It's it's you know uh, about the housing and it's, it's about the uh, the way that. You know, we can handle this influx of, of migration to a state that is already in some terms overpopulated where uh, housing is already hard to come by and traffic, you know, that's another subject. But how, how does a state handle the influx, especially in South Miami, with people coming in by these numbers and where does the uh, the housing come in? Where does the infrastructure come in? Uh, how do we cope with this as a state that is living with this kind of migration problem? And how does this affect us going forward?
0: Thank, thanks for the call, Robert. Um, David, I actually want to put that to, to you because, I mean, the, the Keys is where a lot of these landings are happening. The Keys has one of the most acute housing affordability crisis anywhere in the country right now. I mean, do we know, like, are any of these arrivals actually settling in the keys or are they just landing there and then getting the heck out of there
1: i'm sure a few are but most of them are going to the mainland with with fa- family and friends up there yeah it's i mean that yeah i mean the, the key certainly has a as as a high population of cuban americans uh so i'm 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 sure some are settling in there but I, for the most part they're going to the mainland
2: yeah and one of the big factors of these particular four groups Haitians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, Cubans, you're talking about groups that do have a huge you know family infrastructure uh, community here in South Florida so it's not like they're just you know once they get out of processing that they're just going out to the streets. usually they have family, uh that that, as i said before that can absorb them here into this community which is which is not always the case with other migrant groups
1: well it's interesting you say that too because one of the one of the most common things we see when we happen upon a landing is there are family right human family at the scene seeing if one of their loved ones is amongst those on on the boats they're they're on the lookout for and, and they're, they're you know, like Tim said, they communicate with each other a lot of times through these through WhatsApp and yeah. cell phones. I mean, we've had, um, <laughs> a, it's uh, you know, a couple landings this week, we, we, uh, they asked to, uh, some of the people asked to use our phones so they can contact loved ones and say they made it safely.
2: Yeah. And that does make a big difference. But at to the caller's point, at some point we're going to reach saturation if, the, if this keeps up. Some would argue we were already there. Yeah. Um, We've been talking with WLRN's Latin America
0: editor, Tim Padgett, and also David Goodhue, who covers the Keys for the Miami Herald and Florida Keys News. Tim, David, thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you, Danny. Thank thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, we talked to a Haitian who's currently living with a sponsor while she seeks asylum in the U.S. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The announcement from the Biden administration this week leans heavily on community groups, churches, families and friends to sponsor people fleeing from Cuba, Haiti and Nicaragua. And that's because without a sponsor, migrants from those countries will simply not be let in, according to the Department of Homeland Security. Earlier today, I spoke with Paul Christopher Namphi a lead organizer with the Family Action Network movement in Miami, a group that, among other things, helps Haitian families get resettled in the U.S. Let's listen into that conversation right now. So, Paul, your organization, the Family Action Network movement, helps people who are looking to sponsor family members who are just coming across the border, either by land or by by sea from Haiti in particular. Um, what are you hearing from people that are finding themselves in positions of finding themselves in the position where they're helping resettle loved ones or family members
3: okay well if we can just take take a half step back very quickly uh, the family action network movement was founded over 30 years ago our mission is to empower low to moderate income families socially financially and politically and to give them the tools to transform their communities FUM's vision is to be a leader in creating a sustainable village where thriving families can raise well-rounded children in peace and harmony. Strong families uh, corresponds to strong communities. So in terms of specifically our efforts in uh, accompanying community members, in receiving uh, family members who are are fleeing the situation in Haiti, uh, we have seen uh, really a, a number of outcomes. There have been many, many, many challenges. First of all, Uh, the large numbers of people who have not been able to enter uh, the United States, uh, you know, during an eight-month period, over 26,000 of them were sent back to Haiti, particularly uh, people who were apprehended on the border in the context of Title 42. Um, I would say that for those who have been able to come in, they've faced uh, three major hurdles. Uh, the, The first hurdle is a... A status hurdle, many of them arrived after uh, the of the recent wave arrived after July 29th, 2021, and thus were ineligible for the latest uh, TPS round. Uh, They will be eligible for the for TPS um, based on the December 5th uh, announcement by the Biden administration.
0: The the recertification Uh, of, of TPS for Haitians.
3: Exactly. The redesignation. Uh, which we're waiting on the federal register to to come out for that particular group. Uh, the second big hurdle that the, the community has been facing is that even those who were eligible uh, for uh, TPS, who had been here before July 29th, 2021, uh, many of them, you know, filled paperwork the same month, uh, you know, here at the FOM office, uh, you know, we we helped them in that process. And despite the hope that within three to six months, they would have work authorization, many of them didn't have it after a year many of them still haven't received it and the irony of that is that we're coming up on the 18 months uh deadline after which that authorization will be will be expired anyway and they'll you know have to do it again and so the the third big challenge that they've been facing is when you don't have work authorization it's impossible uh to be uh self-sustaining it to be to be independent and to really uh ensure their own livelihood so they've been and, to... and and
0: Paul, um, on that issue of people arriving, they're here, but they aren't actually technically allowed to to work. Um, if they are being sponsored by a family member, I mean, what kind of stress does that add to a family member who who took in a brother, a cousin, uh, you know, a friend from back home? Uh, like, what kind of financial position is that putting sponsors in?
3: I'm so glad that you asked that question because we here, here at the Family Action Network movement, we've had many conversations about exactly that issue. We've seen everything from uh, just the, the difficulty of the host family to simultaneously look after their own family and the family member that they've received, uh, you know, tensions, for example, between the children of one and the children of the other. Um, and, and just the, the the stress, the socioeconomic, the psychological stress uh, that comes with people unable to to meet their own needs combined with the stress that they received uh, in their 10-country trek, many of them who came from South America, many of whom were mistreated, uh, stolen from, violated, beaten, raped, uh, seen other people killed uh, in the Darien Gap uh, between Colombia and Panama. They arrived at the border rather than asking how they're feeling, uh, they're, they're, they're asked to, uh, you know, there's a fear over whether they'll even be admitted into the United States, and most of them weren't. And so then you compound that stress, which has never really been uh, dealt with to the stresses of surviving here in this community now, uh, without the ability to work legally. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that many of them have have gone to places like Indiana, where apparently, you know, there's some loopholes that they can benefit from, um and we that's not something that we can really comment on or have direct knowledge about but we have seen that outflux of people toward indiana but for those who choose to stay here they they stay in an environment of of not being being able to uh you know to meet their own needs uh sometimes even to to get authorization to go to school it's it's a hurdle because many of the children are not born in haiti and they need to go to the haitian consulate because they were born in chile or brazil and get paperwork done that way and it's it's often very cumbersome. And
0: and, and Paul, um, I, I, I want to ask you because the, you know, a lot of the issues that you're describing is in terms of people trying to get access to services, help them get on their feet and whatnot. And a part of that is actually just getting the ability to work for the ability for people to actually stand up on their own two feet, start providing for themselves and whatnot. And, and I want to ask you because just yesterday on Thursday, the Biden administration announced a new policy um, that will provide um, an avenue for 30,000 people from Cuba, Haiti, um, Nicaragua to come into this country every month from all th- all three of those countries. Um, and then it would also give them the ability to work for up to two years at a time. Um, just Just like on a top level, what is your... Response or, or your feedback on that policy, which would provide work authorization as part of
3: it. So the the Family Action Network movement, uh, you know, received this this news yesterday, uh, as as we all did. Um, I think we're going to see <clears throat> basically uh, carrots and sticks uh, in that policy as we we unpackage it and and figure out all the details of what is and isn't uh, on the table. Uh, I think there uh, are definitely going to be uh, winners and losers in that kind of policy. And it's it's our, our concerns and preoccupations are, you know, is that going to be uh, administered fairly? Uh, are some of the financial constraints and requirements and uh, limits, uh, you know, in terms of who's going to be able to apply based on their their financial situation? Uh, you know, is that going to be discriminating against the poor? And, and some immigrant rights groups have already come out, you know, very critical of the plan as it's being implemented. Um, you know, there's also an issue of of that cap on a, a pool of four countries. And so there's going to how you know, how many uh, slots, you know, for each country is going to be able to get. Uh, I, I think that we we see also the question of how this was gauged, where they uh, President Biden spoke about authoritarian regimes in, in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, but did not say that for Haiti, and basically kept the Haiti description completely apolitical, and just talking about gang violence, when we all know very well that the gang violence and the, the repressive governance is is the left hand and the right hand of the same body. So, you know, I, I think that in terms of the approach about are people who are politically and economically marginalized inside Haiti, are they going to be able to, uh, to take advantage of these uh, opportunities is going to be a big question that we will be following very closely. Another huge question is, uh, you know, the, the basic guidelines of that policy laid out yesterday are talking about people inside Haiti. Uh, what about the tens of thousands of people uh, from Haiti, who were en route, who were in South America, who are now in Central America, trying to make their way to the U.S. Mexico border, we've we've seen. I mean, some...
0: what would you like lawmakers to know about the situation here in South Florida, and and you know, just from what you all see at the Family Action Network movement of families that are expecting loved ones, families that have taken loved ones in. Um, people that don't know the situation about their loved ones. I mean, what do you think the federal government needs to know about the situation on the other side, on our side here in in South Florida?
3: OK, so, yes, there, there's the South Florida piece. There's the Haitians in Haiti piece. And then there's the Haitians in, in South and Central America piece. So in terms of South Florida, I think what we need is is understanding. We need uh, cooperation. We need uh, to. Remind uh, the decision makers that there we have a vibrant Haitian community here. We have uh, many of our Haitian community members here who have relatives who are either in Haiti uh, trying to leave uh, for for very good reasons, or who are en route uh, who because of the conditions in Brazil in Chile, uh, you know, are are unable to be to live a viable existence there and shouldn't be facing hurdle upon hurdle upon hurdle to rejoin their family members here in South Florida. So uh, as you know, our, our approach is a family approach. That's part of our name. And we believe in keeping families together. And so if, if there is a, a family who uh, is trying to, uh, to welcome uh, a family member outside of South Florida, who is in a situation of, of terrible stress and distress uh, they should uh, have the tools to to do so. And when that family member arrives here, there should be an integration process, which is understanding and, and basic, basic uh, amenities uh, should be available so that uh, those family members can be viable and can lead a dignified existence. Uh, we are hoping, because you asked a question about the Biden administration's rollout of their policy yesterday, consideration must be made for Haitians who have already left Haiti, who are no longer in Haiti, uh, who are in a very tenuous situation uh, in a third country, and who are trying to uh, join family members here in the United States. And I say this based on the United States' uh, adherence to their own domestic law about the rights of refugees, about the United States' adherence to international treaties and conventions that they've signed on to, which guarantee certain refugee rights, and also uh, who should be heeding the uh, the request of Volker Turk, the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, and Filippo Grandi, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, who are saying that at this point, Haitians should not be repatriated back to Haiti, which we have seen among many of the maritime interdictions. So uh, for those who aren't repatriated, but who are stuck in a third country, there should be provisions made for them as well.
0: Paul Christopher Namphy is with the Family Action Network movement in Miami. They're based out of Little Haiti. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. For many South Florida families, this influx of people from Cuba and Haiti is personal. The people coming here in search of a better life are their family members. One person who knows these topics well is our next guest, Sabine. We're only using her first name to protect her privacy while she waits on her asylum case to play out because Sabine was born in Haiti and only made it to the U.S. a few months ago. She came to the U.S. originally on a tourist visa, and now she's living with a family that's sponsoring her while she tries to get her documents together to allow her to work. Sabine, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us.
4: Hello, um, this is my pleasure sharing um, my story or my journey with you.
0: Thank you. Um, So Sabine, first thing, um, if you can just help us understand what things were like in Haiti before you left? Uh, like w- what does everyday life look like and feel like in Haiti right now? Are you there, Sabine? Okay, can you Yes, yes, we can hear you. Here,
4: the first Yes.
0: Okay. So just just uh to, to repeat it, um Sabine, what what did what did everyday life look like and feel like in Haiti before you left?
4: Um before I left in Haiti life wasn't easy because there was already the the kidnapping problem, the insecurity and also the economic problem. So um I can say that I was not living uh that, that I was in a, a emergency situation, but it was not easy at all.
0: And the you know, considering what we're seeing with a lot of Haitians coming by boat and going to the US border because they don't have any other options. I mean, in some ways you're doing better than many because you, you came to the US with a visa. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious when you see all these Haitians getting in boats, trying to do whatever they can to come to the US to, to get a chance at a better life. Um, what? Is, how does that make you feel when you see that?
4: Oh, so, um, honestly, I don't even think that's a word to describe how I feel when this when I see this because this is not a this is not a human situation. Any human in the world should not have to live this. But at the same time, I know that there's some people in Haiti that are that is so difficult, like impossible to leave i also understand why people are making this trip but at the same time it's 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 not normal it's not a normal situation
0: and sabine while while you're going through the process of applying for asylum you've been taking you've been taken in and sponsored by a family um so so i want to ask you how has that process impacted you of of being kind of under the care of a family and how is it impacting the family
4: um, for the family I think that they are happy to do it because they always feel safer to know that um, that is, their family family is not made into the situation and, and they will have give everything to just have a, any member of of her family here so for them I know that it's I, I I will not say that easy or comfortable for them but at the same time this is the thing that they wanted to do but by myself I know um, it's not secret see this is not um psycho, psycho, um psychologically it's not uh, a great situation because um as i told you in haiti um i was working and i was like an independent person and adult but now i am like child children waiting for someone to take care of my needs so it's not easy
0: and we we know that you're waiting one of the things you're waiting for is for a work permit to be granted, so you would be able to work in the US. Um, I mean, w- what kind of impact would that have on the kind of life you're living now in the United States if you did get a work permit?
4: Um, if I did, the first thing is that that I will try to, um, I will start to be independent financially um, so I can live like a, an adult. And the second way it will impact my life is about the the ones that are in Haiti. So I will be able to help them financially.
0: And because you still have family in 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 Haiti right now.
4: Yes, I still have um, some of my family. Yes, immediate relatives.
0: And and I mean, what do they say when you talk to them? And and you you all are obviously separated. You're not you're not together. But I imagine you you speak all the time. I mean, what what are they what are they telling yeah. you?
4: Um, I know that my mother, she is kind of worried by the fact that I'm not working, not because I can't send money, even she's asking me uh, to send money to me, but they are, they, it's, they are not living it well because I am far away and they know that um, I, life is not that easy for me, even I'm in the U.S.
0: Well, Sabine, I wanna thank you so much for coming on to, to speak with us very briefly. Um, I really appreciate you you sharing your story and just giving us a few moments of your time. Thank you.
4: Yes, you're coming. thanks to you.
0: Thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, local governments have made many promises over the years, but how many of those promises have been broken? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. All governments make promises. Promises are what inspire voters to choose one candidate or one policy over others. It's a special ingredient that gets politicians elected. And a promise kept is a secret sauce of a functioning democracy. But a broken promise or decades of broken promises can lead to a crisis of trust. It leads to cynicism. It leads to people not believing that their voice actually matters. And ultimately, it leads to complacency and the erosion of democracy itself. This is the subject of a new series from the Miami Herald editorial board, an exploration of broken promises in Miami-Dade County. And we want to invite you to chime in on this segment. You can call us at at 800-743-WLRN. Again, that's 800-743-9576. Joining us now to talk about this is Amy Driscoll, the deputy editor of the Miami Herald editorial board. Amy, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Hi, Danny. Thanks for asking me.
0: (laughs) Amy, so so in this series, Broken Promises, you highlight a handful of things that longtime residents of Miami-Dade might remember somewhere in the background of their brains. But a newcomer might have no idea that X thing was promised. Why is it important to circle back to these promises that were made in some instances decades ago?
5: Well, you know, Miami has a, a history of a transient population. Um, it really has a short memory when it comes to these things. And I think politicians and developers have traded on that for a long time. They really didn't think that a lot of times the things that they said they were going to have to do, they would have to do ultimately. And that's kind of proven true. But as someone who has lived here a long time myself, um, that just burns me. I, I, you know, I find that to be unacceptable. If we want to be a world-class city, which is what our leaders keep telling us, then we have to have, you know, some follow through on some of these things. And so we went through and looked at a bunch of these longer term broken promises in camp with five. And that's when I really did a deep dive on those. um, And that's what the series became.
0: And and yeah, like some some of these promises that you highlight in the series are not small things. These were things meant to move the whole region forward. Things like expanding the metro rail to northeast Miami Dade County, making Virginia Key into a kind of central park of Miami. (laughs) It's almost like. You know, reading it, you you imagine where we could be instead of where we are. But can you talk about some of those specific projects you mentioned?
5: Sure. Yeah, and you, you're right. I mean, some of these are are enormous and important, and people, you know, really believed that they were going to happen, and then they didn't. And that that crisis of trust you were talking about is is real. Um. So so some of the ones like one of the ones we did that we that that you mentioned is the the metro rail extension along 27th Avenue to the northern end of the county. Um. When they um, asked for approval of Metrorail, they asked Black voters specifically in that area to vote for it, and they did, thinking that there was going to be a Metrorail for them. And forty-something years later, here we are, nothing. So, you know, and there, in the in the editorial, we talk a little bit about some of the potential um, progress that's being made, and that's certainly something that the mayor of Miami Dade County is working on. Um, and to be fair, you know, the, the politicians in office now are not the ones who made these promises. But they are still the ones that we need to hold accountable for them today, because when the promise does not, does not, you know, is not fulfilled, then we all hurt. Um, so that's one of them, and that's gotten a lot of traction. People are very interested in that one. I think transportation in general in this county is a, is a sore spot. Um, uh, there's and, the, and,
0: and one of you know pardon. one of the ones that I feel, you know, I, I'm I'm a public space advocate. I, I would probably say I mean, there's nothing we like to think we're a world-class city and that's like the one thing that we really lack is public space. Um, and you know, one of the pieces you talked about is the, you know, the failure of Miami Dade County to put a waterfront public park on the slice of land behind the FTX arena where the Miami heat play. And you know, it is accessible to the public sometimes, but that's only when it's not used for parking for Miami heat games. Um, (laughs) <laughs> where where does that promise stand right now because i know there has been a little bit of talk of doing something with that
5: yeah they are there is some progress supposedly being made on that and and you know i i hey i don't want to be you know um, negative but honestly we'll believe it when we see it because it's been so long um but yes there's a small piece of land behind the Miami Heat arena that was supposed to be a park and we i went back and found the original ads when there was a huge you know, campaign to allow the Miami Heat to build that arena on public land on the waterfront, which is you know really precious land. And as part of that, you know, we had we had Pat Riley out there making the pitch and saying, you know, this is going to be a waterfront park for all of us. And yet, <laughs> there isn't one, and that is unbelievable to me. So, um, so I went back and sort of talked to I talked to the Heat and, and spoke to a bunch of people about it. And you know, it is it's a it, it's a small piece. It's only about four acres but it's, it's so insulting to the voters who, who, you know, agreed to give public land to, you know,
0: a billionaire. A
5: yes. A for-profit organization to say the least. And, um, and yet, and they, and they still haven't come true on that. It's not totally on the heat. It's also on the County,
0: mm-hmm.
5: but, but still it's, it's, and if you go back there right now, it's fences and you can, you can get through there, through there with some permission. There's a lot of people fishing on the, you know, on the wall there.
0: I used to um, go fishing at the height of COVID there because there, there was nothing else to do. Right.
5: Yeah. But there's beautiful little spots, right? It it's it, it is very nice. Pretty and you get a real sense of the city and that should be for the people not, not for, you know, I know that, that he rents it and that's their prerogative. And they, you know, they have a contract, but still in the end, that needed to be a park.
0: And you know, one of the, the, the things that you, that you listen to series is, um, Kind of the open question of what's become of the Miami Circle and the other major Native American sites that have been discovered by archaeologists in the last couple of decades. Um, the Miami Circle was kind of the most famous of them. But can you tell us a little bit about what the promises were made when these Native American artifacts and discoveries were found by archaeologists?
5: Yeah, the 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 Miami Circle, the, the first one, which is the one that people know the most about um, at the mouth of the Miami River. Is now a park pretty much it's it's grassed over um to save the 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 artifacts from deterioration which is probably the right thing to do but um you know there was a big deal it was an international furor when they found that it was people thought, thought it had many mystical properties there were demonstrations you know and, i i I, and,
0: I was a child that i remember it that was a that was a really big thing
5: and the state did the right thing and bought it they bought it from the developer and that was great um, But then it kind of broke down because it's like, okay, what happens now? Well, they have to save it somehow. They make it into an open space, which is nice. Um, But there's no, there's almost nothing on there. You can tell what it is. Like there's a, there are a couple plaques. There's some little, little, little things here and there some couple signs. But mostly it's used as a dog park and you have, you know, dogs pooping on it. And it's, that's really not what it was supposed to be. And, and they could do so much more. And there were plans to do it and they've never come true. And that's on the state. And then in addition to that, after that, in the last, you know, more recently than that, um, they've found these other Tequesta Indian sites along the, the river on the other side, um, on the downtown those, they, Miami side. Yeah. And they allow the developers to go forward there. And there's one right now that the developers is, is, is on that's ha- that they're looking at right now. Um, but the ones that, the ones that I focused on, um, are in the met Miami development and they allowed the developer to do, to do develop on almost all of that land, but um, there were a few areas that were supposed to be preserved and then when you go look at them now it's a, it's the same thing you go look you can't tell what that is there's one you can sort of look at over a glass railing there's no signage you don't know what it is it's just on a busy corner with like traffic going by looks like you know one yeah i, I i've like, seen it it almost
0: looks like like <laughs> a dump site that just yeah, doesn't you know, have trash on it for some reason right
5: yeah. And then the other one, you can't find it all unless you like peek through the a the away section of a covering on a window and you happen to know what you're looking for. So, you know, and those are those are prehistoric Miami sites and they are important and they are our history and we need to act that way. And yet this this city and the county, we act as though it's sort of like an optional thing. Oh, maybe we'll get to it, maybe we won't. That was one of those those, you know, they are in negotiation right now on what to do to finish the preservation of those. And that's a good thing. So there's there's some progress there, I think.
0: And just to, to round out the, the list of the five in the, in the series, the, the the other ones you have is the, you know, the the plans and promises to make Virginia Key into its full potential, the island off of the city of Miami um, and Black Coconut Grove essentially being wiped out by developers and decades long neglect after, you know, there was promises to redevelop. Um, can you just talk about those? But. We only have about a minute to go.
5: Okay, sure. Yes. Um, Yeah, the the black grove coconut grove. That's a there's there's a lot of private money involved in that, but the redevelopment of Grand Avenue, which could have been something that they that the city really focused on to anchor that community and not make it be so vulnerable to uh, gentrification. That's the, that's the broken promise there, and that, that's been going on for many years um, through, through many different uh, administrations. And then Virginia Key, it's a beautiful you know, island right off of Miami. We, some people say it could be our, our version of Central Park, but with waterfront, I mean, it could be gorgeous, and it's still, you know, it's still a lot of the plans for that have been so slow and bogged down, there. and there are various people trying to do things on there all the time. They try to move the homeless camp out there. So, um, you know, I think those are those are two other things that are, you know, long term civic promises that that are overdue to be fulfilled. I
0: mean, M- Miami Marine Stadium has been, you know, yeah, how it is now since spot, Hurricane right? Andrew. We just had the 30th anniversary
5: and it could be great.
0: <laughs> it, it could be <laughs> one of the first stories I ever did was about Marine Stadium. Uh, <laughs> and that was a while ago. Let me say a- Amy Driscoll is a deputy editor of the Miami Herald editorial board. Amy, thanks so much for joining us and, and sharing about the series. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. The South Florida Roundup is produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor for news. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. And I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening.
2: WLRN Public Media.